The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Let's check in with Ira Jersey. He actually thinks about this stuff all day when he's not thinking about soccer. Uh, that's because he's a U.S. interest rate strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence, so we pay him to think about this stuff. So, Ira, you looked at the data this morning, and I'm going to ask you to put your little Fed chairman hat on. What are you taking away from today's data? Uh, really not very much. I mean, I think this is more or less what the Fed was thinking. Um, you know, Matt just mentioned a second ago that, you know, inflation's not coming down very quickly. That's you know, very true. And I think that that's always been the, the risk and the danger is that, um, you know, the, the market was pricing for inflation to come down much faster than it was ever likely to come down. And, and that's one of the reasons why what you're seeing today and, and the reason why two-year yields are, are uh, off so much is that we're now pricing out some uh, potential cuts later in the year. And I think that that's probably the right move. I, I do think that the Fed is going to do what it says and hike two or three more times at 25 basis points each, then basically do nothing for the better part of a year. And, and the market is starting to come around to that way of thinking, which, you know, Paul, I've told Not you the and stock market, over dude. the last six weeks. So. Not the stock market. I mean, we <laughs> rallied yesterday into this uh, inflation print. Today we got it, and it was at expectations or higher than expected, and we continue to see prices rise I just can't work it out. Uh, what's the disconnect between um, stocks and bonds? Uh, well, I, I can't. I can't really speak about equity valuations, but I think maybe um, you know maybe part of it is the idea that there still is some some pricing power for certainly for some goods and services. Um, you know, but I can tell you that that from the rates perspective, you know, the reason why you're seeing this deeper inversion of the yield curve. We're now the deepest inverted that we've been in decades, um, and, we're at the, and, and we're likely to see more. Um, you know, we have fair value on the two-year yield, assuming that the Fed does what we think it will do at around 4.8%. So we still have another 20 to 25 basis points to go here in, in the two-year yield. And you know, we're looking for 10-year yield maybe to get up toward 390, but not break 4%. So that's an interesting, you know, I think a really interesting dynamic where you can see very inverted yield curves. You want up with in an, an, an environment where um, where that that probably persists for most of the year, um, and people are going to be saying like, "Hey, that that's a signal that we're going to be in a recession." Blah blah blah, and, and you know maybe so, but it's going to take a long time for that to filter through to the to the rest of the market, and maybe that's what the equity markets. Uh, really thinking here is that we're not going to be in a recession, that there's not going to be a, a very hard landing. I mean, if you look at the inversion, it's crazy that this is the most inverted we've been, as far as I can see, since what, the 70s? Because you had the, the early 80s, yeah. So the early 80s, which means that, you know, the bursting of the internet bubble was nothing on this. You know, nationwide housing bust, well, global housing bust, 
uh, in the 2008 global financial crisis didn't hold a candle to this, right? It's it's only this recession that gets us back to like the blow up of Bretton Woods. Well, I, I think though, Matt, you know what we have to appreciate is that this is also the first time since the early '80s that we've had inflation like this, right? And and it's coming down so uh, so slowly that the market is trying to adjust to what is the near-term outlook for both inflation and you know policy rates, which is that they're going to it's going to remain a little bit higher for longer than the market was initially thinking, versus where are we going to be in four years? Um, so in four years, we might be in a deflationary environment. And, you know, we're not there yet, and, and hopefully we won't get there. But, but you, can, you can see an environment where we go back more to, like, 1990s level of, uh, of interest rates and, and of, of an economy where, you know, a 5 or 6% mortgage is just normal. Look, I, I keep on bringing this up. My first mortgage that I got in the late 90s was 7%, and I thought that that was a decent rate. You know, so, so, but, but, but we've gotten accustomed to well, very low interest rates, right? So we have to get readjusted to a higher interest rate environment, which especially considering um, the prices haven't. paid. Ira, you know, you know uh, uh, who was it? Iceman um, from the Big Short. Yep. Steve Iceman was. I keep bringing this up, but on the Odd Lots podcast, he said, "I do the back of the napkin math from three percent rates to the seven percent rate mortgage that we're looking at now." housing prices have to drop 30, 35, 40% yep. in order to make up for that. People don't maybe realize what a big jump that is. Well, but in fairness, too, you have to also look at the income side of the equation, right? Because if you look at something like housing affordability and Erica Edelberg, who's our mortgage strategist who reports to me, she's been doing some great work on this. Um, you have to appreciate that affordability is certainly lower because of the higher interest rates, but you also have have uh, wages that are growing at 6% a year, right? So if you think about it from an affordability perspective, it doesn't necessarily have to drop 30%. Does it have to drop you know, some level, you know, 5 10 15%? Yeah, maybe. But we also rallied, uh, you know, but, but house prices also went up massively over the last couple of years as well. So you would expect potentially some type of adjustment. And quite frankly, that's what the Fed is trying to engineer, right? They're trying to get some of the froth out of the real economy um, that hasn't necessarily translated as directly to the financial economy, right? That's one reason why the equity market is maybe where it is at the moment. Um, but the but, but we're still much lower, right? We're still very far off the highs in, in terms of, of equity markets. We haven't, we're not making new highs yet and um and, and in an environment where we're not going to fall into a recession then then treading water is probably right. not uh, can't be completely unexpected all right so i wrote super bowls over pitchers and catchers not yet so i can actually focus a little bit on european soccer or any soccer what am i what am i watching this coming weekend um, you know, I haven't looked at the fixtures for this weekend, but I know after this past weekend that the uh, the battle at the top of the Premier League is heating up where you don't have Manchester City up there at the moment. You have Arsenal and Manchester United currently one and two in the uh, in the table. So it's right. got to keep I mean, John Farrow is pretty happy. I think. Isn't he an Arsenal guy? <laughs> I don't or know. Oh, is he a Tottenham No, he's guy? a Chelsea guy. But um, he's a Chelsea uh, guy. who owns Arsenal? Because Manchester uh, United about to be bought by Dubai, right? And don't. Yeah. yeah. So, all right, we'll figure out the Middle Easterners are. <laughs> already own Manchester City. They own a lot. So, so. All right, Ira, thanks so much uh, for joining us. Ira Jersey, uh, Chief U.S. Interest Rate Strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence, uh, breaking down some of the inflation data and what how the Fed might interpret that data going forward in the next upcoming meetings. We'll have more coming up. This is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state 
influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. I am in a, a, a bit of a tough spot right now. Are you? I'm looking for a couple cars that Don't you have a couple of cars. I have to have. Well, there's there's certain for especially the Dodge Challenger. Okay. I have to get a Don't Dodge you know Challenger. Dodge? Uh, not really. No. Okay. Uh, I, before they are done making them. So this okay. is the last year for the 6.4 liter Hemi, and I must have. That's what I hear. Uh, a Challenger Scat Pack wide body tough to find allocations for that and the prices are off the charts i also want a bronco but i was at the ford dealership the other day and they said look ford's putting a stop to the good combinations with the big sasquatch package you know sure um they're just giving out the the little ones right now okay so that's that's heartbreaking and that's not even getting into electric car territory because if i wanted a lightning right now or if i wanted to order a silverado ev i mean i would be paying probably a hundred grand it's crazy. Prices are off the charts right now. I want to bring in David Welch, who uh, wrote our big take story today about this pricing situation. Car prices hit record highs as automakers limit output. Um, and we're seeing it really across the industry. But EVs play a big a big piece of, uh, into this right now. David joins us out of Detroit, the Motor City, obviously. So, David, what are you finding? Because We've been in this situation for a couple of years now where prices are just ramping up and it doesn't seem like there's any end in sight. Yeah, they, they, they've been going nuts since really the pandemic started. And a lot of it is production related. But going forward, and even to a certain extent right now, car companies want to keep production somewhat constrained because they've learned that making fewer vehicles and selling them at big prices is just a way better business than flooding dealer lots with a bunch of production and hoping it'll sell. And when it doesn't, inevitably putting four or $5,000 in rebates out there to make it move. Um, but that's how they've always so done it. There's no way they're going to maintain this discipline, are they? Well, we'll see. But let's look at a few numbers first. So Toyota and General Motors say that the industry probably has enough semiconductor chips this year in the U.S., let's start with, to make 15 million vehicles, which is two to two and a half million fewer than they usually make in, in like, you know, years with pretty strong economies and low unemployment, like this one. Um, and that's been the case for the past couple of years. In fact, they only sold about 13 million last year. So there's a lot of pent-up demand out there, people looking for cars, people like you who either couldn't find what they wanted because it didn't exist or they did find what they wanted, but a dealer was charging two thousand over sticker, and they walked and figured they'd just keep driving their car and wait till prices came back. What I would so give for two thousand over sticker? That would be a dream come um, true. Sure. I'm, I'm hearing David. I'm hearing on the Challenger. Um, I'm hearing the best deal I've heard so far is five thousand over sticker, and good friends of mine, whom I've grown up with since <laughs> elementary school, are saying ten to twenty k over. Crazy. Um, I mean, look, there's there are some crazy gouging. Those are the exceptions. And I, I was searching for a Kia for my daughter, helping her find a car, and you know, she ended up having to buy some stupid uh, thing where you, you basically scotch guard the seats for 400 over sticker, and, and that was it. And 
you know, some are one or two thousand over sticker. A lot of that has actually gone away. So prices are softening up a little. But there's just there's not enough production out there and still enough pent up demand where these high prices are probably gonna last this year and maybe into uh twenty twenty four. And that's when we'll kind of figure out do they really have discipline? Yeah, that's kind of production. I mean, I'm just looking at, you know, you have the Big Take story today out on this topic. So you can find that at Bloomberg.com slash Big Take or NIA space Big Take Go on the Bloomberg terminal. And it is a deeply reported story here. But it just comes down to, I think, back to the Henry Ford. I mean, that's the business model. Crank out 17 million SAR and you move them. But I mean, I understand that this is a better economic model. David, I I will tell you that Paul's been pushing for automakers to get back to peak SAR for a couple of years now. So it's one of, this is, along with working from home, this is one of his pet peeves. And and there's no shortages of chips and stuff, right? I mean, so. There still are, right? David, there still are shortages. Yeah, there still is. Look, like, the, the, the chip shortage is not binary. We don't go from having none to having as many as you possibly want in bins all over by the roadside like that. We're, we're Like I said, Toyota and GM say we're going to go from having a dearth of chips to being able to make about 15 million vehicles this year. That's not near peak. In fact, that's 12, 15% below peak. So if you have, if you're still 12 to 15% below peak in terms of what you can produce this year, and there's still a lot of consumers out there like you guys who want a car, then it's still seller's market and i'll throw one more thing at you this year and next we're going to have about five or six hundred thousand fewer vehicles coming off lease because automakers and dealers were not leasing as much so people can the cars they purchase they can hold longer than a lease at least you gotta you either gotta buy the car or get something new it's just what the contract says so the used market even though that has been softening up a bit is still not going to come roaring back as a source for cars because you don't have as many coming off lease. I'm not saying prices won't weaken this year for new and used cars. I think they will. But in order for it to get really affordable, which is the whole point of the big take, for middle-class buyers to be able to afford this and get a payment from the current rate of 770 bucks a month down to a more affordable 400 a month, prices don't need to soften a little this year. They need to collapse. They're not. They're not. But we do see some softening. You put a point out in the story, and I remember um – uh, Paul and I spoke with Keith Naughton when he, uh, when he, when he had talked, just talked to Ford about cutting prices on the Mach E, that, and they told him in response to his question, "Why? Um, well, we got to do it because Tesla just cut prices." Mm-hmm. So you're starting to see little cracks, right? And, and the question is, can uh, you know if if Jim Farley and Elon Musk are already, um, you know, are already uh, falling falling out of rank um can mary barra and mark royce and the rest of the industry you know hold 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 the line for the moment i think the ev market and the internal combustion vehicle market are kind of two different markets uh and also after after tesla cut their prices they went back in and snuck in a 1500 hour increase um there are some other dynamics going on there some of the price decreases we saw from ford and tesla were so they can get their sticker prices under the threshold so their customers can get federal tax credits. So you drop your cut you know, the price of your car by three thousand, you get under a certain threshold and the government gives that consumer another seventy five hundred bucks or thirty five hundred bucks, whatever you know, whatever it comes out to for that vehicle, and it's an even bigger bonus and they'll sell more thanks to Uncle Sam. So there was some of that going on. And I and I do think look Tesla's in a funky position right now. They have a ton of production capacity coming online that's pretty new. And, and the, the plant in Austin, Texas, hasn't even really begun to get close to full production. 
So Elon saw his sales goals being missed. He wanted to grow sales by 50%. He only grew it by 40. Still great by anyone else's standards, but that was it. Um, and he didn't like that. He has a ton of production coming online. Uh, all of his vehicles, particularly the Model S and the Model X, haven't been redesigned uh, in almost a decade. The Model S is almost old enough to shave. Um, <laughs> so he's got, and, and, the, and look, his cars, people love them. They're good products, but they all look alike. So, like, Tesla vehicles are different sizes and shapes of the same sausage. Right. So, I, you know, I, I think he's got three things going on. He does have new competition coming in from Ford, GM, Volkswagen, Audi, uh, BMW, Mercedes have vehicles out. The Koreans, Hyundai, Kia have some very good product out there. So that he has competition. He has a ton of capacity coming online, and he hasn't freshened any of his vehicles. All of that, all of that, in any other vehicle market, any other vehicle segment, says you got to cut prices. And I think that's what's David, real, real quickly, 30 seconds. What are consumers doing today? Are they are they paying $100,000 for a pickup truck? Uh, some of them are. <laughs> yeah, so like, there are a variety of things going on. People are buying expensive vehicles, but that's your wealthier, more affluent consumers. A lot of your uh, middle-class consumers are either riding their vehicle for another year or two and just putting money into repairs, or they're buying like eight, nine-year-old vehicles in the used market because that's where you can really get affordably right now. All right, amazing stuff. I mean, uh, I'll be fascinated to see if this industry can maintain its discipline, uh, but we'll see. David Welch, Detroit Bureau Chief for Bloomberg News. All right, let's talk crypto, and there's a million ways we can go here, but I want to go crypto regulation. I mean, is this a space that's going to be regulated, needs to be regulated? For all that stuff, we turn to Nathan Dean. He's a senior policy analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Nathan, you're the smart guy in the room, BS in managing from Purdue, heck of a hoops team this year. Where did that come from? And then an MBA from Chicago, so you are overeducated to that to the max. What do you make of all this crypto space in terms of regulation? You know, it, it sounds like there's a massive crackdown coming in. I mean, just putting it in Purdue terms, it's like if uh, Purdue's, you know, playing the, uh, you know, one of the smallest teams out there. It, it's just one of those things where, you know, we've seen over the past year, the SEC say, come in and register, come in and talk to us. And the industry largely has not. And just within the last few months, we've started to see the SEC start to crack the whip. One of the things that they've done is they've sent out what are known as Wells notices out to many different crypto players. In fact, Paxos announced that they had received one. Essentially, what this is, is the SEC has decided we're going to take an enforcement action against you, but we're just giving you a heads up so that you can give us a written response of why we shouldn't do this. It's not going to stop the SEC, but we are going to see a lot more enforcement actions between now and the next few months. And that's really going to issue a further chill to the industry. I get how staking could be considered a security, certainly staking as a service. Um, in the Kraken case, it's harder for me to grasp how a stable coin is a security because you're not expecting any return from a stable coin. No. So actually, SEC Chairman Gary Gensler gave a speech last year where he essentially insinuated that stable coins are money market funds. And money market funds has its own you know, regulatory regime. And in the SEC's eyes, you know, potentially they should be following that money market reform. Now, if you assume that they're not a security, well, then they could be considered a deposit. And if they are a deposit, then there are other types of banking regulations that need to apply here. And so I think when you move forward with stable coins, the idea here is, is that there's got to be some type of regulation. You can't have nothing. But the question is, what does it look like? Now, I still believe that Congress will eventually move forward on a stable coin regulation. In fact, as we speak right now, the Senate Banking Committee is talking about this. 
But, you know, outside of stable coins for the rest of the crypto industry, it's really not looking good right now in terms of new regulations. Is this or to what extent is this maybe increased regulatory um, attention a function of FTX going bust and Sam Bankman Fried and all that mess? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it, this gave it was like giving the politicians a piece of candy and making them all excited because it gave them a talking point. You know, they can understand the failure of a company. They understand that there are over 9 million creditors out there who potentially may not get their funds back. And this is essentially giving politicians the ability to say, we need new regulation. We need customer protections. We need anti-money laundering. The problem is, is that there are multiple different ideas out there. Right now, Senator Brown is talking about doing this. Senator Tim Scott, the ranking member for the Senate Banking Committee, was talking about putting in new customer protections. Senator Elizabeth Warren is actually building a coalition, including some conservative Republicans, to come up with her own crypto bill. And this is where it's going to play out over the next six months. The problem for the crypto industry, though, is, is that they've always said they want clarity. The problem is, is that the clarity is coming or it could be coming and it may not be exactly what they want. It may be very, very onerous, very restrictive, and it's going to cost a lot of money to comply with it. All right. Let's get on to it. Well, first of all, let me plug my show. Uh, Bloomberg, Bloomberg Crypto. Yeah. 1 p.m. this afternoon. We are focused on this issue for a full 30 minutes. Nice. Which you, is, I guarantee, the most you want to hear about it. Okay. Well, 30, got it 30 minutes is the, is the upper limit. You Bitcoin, don't want to hear any more about Bitcoin crypto Bitcoin's $22,000 a token. Yeah. yeah, no, it's doing great. Um, I want to talk, though, while we have you, Nathan, about some of the other things. First of all, whatever happened to the sky is falling debt ceiling people? Are they still, like, warning about how horrible this is and what a problem we face? Yeah, but now that the State of the Union is over, you know, Congress is actually turning back to uh, other topics. I mean, the debt ceiling, the problem with the debt ceiling, it was a good thing that the politicians began to look at it on an earlier uh, earlier in the year. I honestly didn't think they were going to do that, um, you know, but they've gotten their initial talking points through out there in the public. And now they've turned to other issues. The problem with it is, is that with Treasury setting this June 5th date and our own rate strategist, Ira Jersey, saying potentially even September or October is the X date, Congress has a lot of time to sit around and do nothing. And so it's more likely going to be one of those situations where they'll start talking about it again. But until the, the market and until New York comes down and says, folks, you need to start looking at this, we're getting worried, that's when they'll actually start negotiating. So I, I think you'll see some more negotiations probably in April or May, uh, and then certainly more information if that June date gets pushed back out to September or October. All right, then the two things that I always need to keep abreast of. Okay. Uh, safe banking so yep. that weed companies can uh, can expand and grow. <laughs> and then um, the SALT tax deduction. Yeah, that's now back on what, my radar. What do we know, Nathan? You know, I'm not giving you good hopes on either of them. I mean, when it comes to safe <laughs> banking, uh, you know, there was a real opportunity to get it done last year in the lame duck. Uh, you know, we're going to see a catalyst around April 20th. That's when the Senate uh, Democrats especially like to- 420. Uh, Yep, exactly. <laughs> they, they, you'll see a lot of catalysts and a lot of movement around April 20th, but we just don't see it. I mean, the one thing for the marijuana industry going right now is that President Biden has directed his agencies to look at reschedulizing and uh, declassifying marijuana. But that's a multi-year schedule process. one drug. Is it still a schedule one drug? Still a schedule one drug. Um, and it's up there with fentanyl. <laughs> Yeah. And, and, you know, it does give the industry hope that a change is coming, but that's a multi-year process. And, 
you know, regulations never move fast. And then on the salt deduction, you know, we saw the the salt coalition, the the lawmakers from New, Jer- New York and New Jersey give a speech last week outside the Capitol Hill. And I'm just sorry again for the folks in New York and New Jersey. It's just not something that I think is going to happen anytime soon. All right. Oh, as long as they don't extend it past 2025. Oh, that's when it sunsets? That's when the, the Trump uh, tax thing wears off. Hey, Nathan. Right, Nathan? Yeah, 30 seconds, Nathan. What will they get done in the next couple of years? So, you know, I, I think you're going to have to see anti-China. You know, anti being anti-China is really popular. Uh, big tech, you know, there's a lot of ideas floating around there in terms of technology right now. Uh, th- that's going to take some time. But you got to look at these must-pass pieces of legislation, so like the debt ceiling, the government funding bills, and so forth. That's when the lobbyists are going to try and attach things like the SALT deduction right. uh, and potentially try and, you know, get government to pass it that way. So I'm not saying things can't get done. It's just it's not going to be these grandiose economic stimulus bills. All right, that's called gridlock, I think, is kind of what we... Yeah, that's we, why we, we gave people. him 30 seconds to tell us what Congress <laughs> exactly. is going to get done in exactly. the next two years. All right, Nathan, good stuff. If they, if they do get anything done, give us a ring and we'll certainly chat about it. Nathan Dean, Senior Policy Analyst for U.S. and Latin America for Bloomberg Intelligence. That's right. I mean... I'll tell you, almost nobody on Wall Street has policy analysts like we do covering all different parts uh, of the government and where policy can impact uh, industries and companies. So Nobody knows it like our Nathans. Nobody knows it like our Nathans. We're going to have more coming up. This is Bloomberg. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. All right, let's talk about a big, big picture topic here. We're talking ESG. We're talking diversity, um, maybe in the technology space, because there's been some some news coming out of Silicon Valley on that front. And there was a recent op-ed in Newsweek entitled, Why Elon Musk and Peter Thiel are wrong on ESG investing. And the person who wrote that op-ed piece is in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Help me out with the pronunciation here. Aniela Ungurasen. She's a founder of Edge Empower. She's based in Zurich, but she's here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio today. How good is that? Uh, Aniela, thanks so much for joining us here. Talk to us about why you wrote this op-ed and what are some of the key takeaways from your op-ed as you think about diversity and equality. Thank you for having me. So one of the main reasons why we wrote that op-ed is that, of course, with all the layoffs that are going on in the tech sector right now, the big question is, why should companies continue their investments in diversity, equity, and inclusion? Are these investments only making sense when things are going well and times are good? And is this a disposable investment in bad times? And um, there are three reasons. Uh, why we believe that companies should continue their DNI investments uh, also in tougher times, in times of layoffs. First and foremost, it's because study after study 
shows positive correlation between profitability and diversity. The most recent one, published in January by the World Economic Forum, shows that ethnically diverse and gender diverse companies outperform their industry peers in terms of profitability by 36% and 25%. That is fascinating because I'm, I would expect uh, an outperformance in terms of revenue growth, right? If you want to sell more stuff to more people, you need to get more people to sell that stuff, right? Um, in a sense. But profitability is an even more interesting metric. Why, why do you think that is? I think that profitability is also related to the capacity of the organization to show agility to adapt to changing market conditions, to show resilience, and to show an increased capacity to innovate. And all these are positively correlated with a more diverse workforce. So just looking at your- Wait, that was only one, there are three. Oh, three, go. (laughs) You just finished one. I jump in all the time. What's reason number two why we should care about? Reason number two is that we should really care about people who stay in the workforce. Uh, so we should really give them some good news and positive vibes and showing them that we need them to stay engaged. As opposed to quiet quitters. As opposed to quiet quitters. And uh, very interestingly, a Gallup study showed that in the U.S. right now, the number one reason for diverse talent, women and uh, other Uh, historically underrepresented groups to join or to stay a company is how well they feel respected, what is their work-life balance, and what is their personal well-being taken care of in the workplace. So these are key ingredients for engagement alongside. It's a good motivator is basically what you're saying. Exactly. What's number three? Number three is that, of course, we need to take a long-term view of diversity, equity, and inclusion. We cannot continue considering it as a layer on top of an organizational core purpose. It's fundamental to it because it's investment in people. So there has been... Number three is a little softer. I think number three is a little bit wishier-washier than number... I mean, number one, I get it. You're driving the bottom line. Number two, okay, you're motivating your soldiers. Number three, we should because we should? Well, not exactly. In the last three months, one in four American... Um, employees were recruited, whether they were looking actively for an opportunity or not. And 39% of those declined a job offer because the company could not demonstrate their commitments to diversity, equity, and inclusion. Now, in a market where there is a lot of competing demand for talent, being able to demonstrate long-term commitment to that gives you an edge in terms of attracting, retaining, and motivating the best talent. Okay, sorry. Go Thank now. You very go much. ahead. Sorry, I just wanted to get through those. I those know, but let me take the other side of the coin. Some influential folks out there, Elon Musk. They're they're pushing back on this stuff. Elon Musk recently called ESG the devil. Uh, Peter Thiel's out there, and some others, Bill Ackman, and so on and so forth. What is their? And we've had Vivek Ramaswamy come in here and say. He's telling companies, just focus on profits. Don't worry about social stuff. He would like reason number one. He might even like reason number two. He might? Yeah. So what's the pushback that that you in the ESG community are seeing from some of these folks? Yes. So I think that the the main pushback is related exactly to what you said. ESG is perceived as wishy-washy. 
And why is ESG perceived as wishy-washy? Because we do not feel that we can measure some of the aspects behind the right. ESG, especially behind the S and behind the G. The taxonomy just isn't there. In objective yeah. ways, we cannot agree how material some of those topics are. And we cannot agree to some standards of excellence when it comes to the ESG. So because we cannot make that link, which is undoubtedly there, uh, we tend to think that ESG, it is an afterthought, and it's destroying shareholder value, while ESG is about creating sustainable shareholder value and keeping the company competitive long term. Well, see, the argument Vivek Ramaswamy would make if he were here, actually, I, I can't speak for him. No. But I would guess he would say, look, my number one motivation is profit. And if I need to put uh, some environmental or social concerns aside for that, I'm going to do it. Yes, I think that you will always have investors. You might think that's short-sighted. Well, right? I think that that's his opinion and he's entitled to have it. Uh, I think that the beauty... I'm guessing that's his opinion. I can't <laughs> be sure. We have to have both of you on together. <laughs> that would be a very good conversation. I think that the idea of it is to, to go beyond this very polarized view. I think that there will always be companies and investors that will take that view. Our focus is profit, profit only, short term. And there will be companies who will take a longer term view of how they create value for their stakeholders. And the two can coexist. Right. We just have to make sure well, that we there are very clear signs because there will always be people who want to work for one company or to the or or the other or who would want to invest in one rather than the other. Well, this ESG also seems to me in a sense like um, the crypto industry in that it's nascent, right? It's still growing up and getting into its adolescence. We just started talking about this really a, a decade ago, and we haven't developed the classifications. We haven't developed the metrics, standard metrics that we all agree on yet, but we're doing that. For example, you help Bloomberg work on the gender equality index, don't you? That's right. So, and, and as we get more metrics like that, and you can show investors, hey, look, this chart goes up and to the right, then they're going to get on board. Yes, and I think that, you know, coming from Europe, uh, I think that Europe is a little bit further ahead when it can, comes to creating that taxonomy and creating that cl clarity around the debate. Because one of the things that I still believe needs to be clarified is that ESG and ESG investments do not necessarily imply a focus on having a positive ESG-related impact. ESG investment can be simply considering the ESG-related risks as part of a certain number of risks in evaluating the risk of the Makes portfolio. Sense. Or it can be considering ESG risks as being the main risks, or it can be impact investment, which is making investments with the intent to have a positive ESG impact. It's a big, broad bucket. It is, and I think that there is confusion between the outcome and the process in some of these conversations, right? Yeah. Well, just, just to let you know how seriously Bloomberg 
the terminal takes ESG. If you go to one of the most widely used functions for financial analysis on the Bloomberg terminal, FA, go for any ticker, uh, right up there with the income statement, the balance sheet, the cash flow statement, there's a tab for ESG. And when you click on that tab, you'll see all the ESG metrics uh, on a historical basis uh, that Bloomberg captures for these companies. So uh, it's, you know, just from the Bloomberg perspective in terms of uh, the efficacy of the data, we value it as we would uh, income statement data, balance sheet data, th things like well, that. Well, we're trying so, to build that functionality, exactly. right? And I would imagine we're working with people like Anila to do it. Yeah, so. And, and I think that, you know, another way to look at ESG, ESG is being good ancestors, right? It's behaving respectfully, knowing that we live in a world with limited resources and thinking what kind of a planet, what kind of economy, what kind of a social fabric we leave to the seventh generation down yep. the line. Yep, great stuff. Uh, Aniela Ungodesen, founder of Edge Empower, uh, based in Geneva, I believe, right? Or Zurich? Geneva? Zurich. 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 Okay. Uh, good stuff. She Make went to the University all. of Geneva. Went to get MBA from the University of Geneva. Why didn't I think of that? Yeah. Uh, Duke was fun, but Geneva would have been maybe a little bit better. Uh, joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio, we're breaking down, talking all the ESG stuff. It continues to be a big issue for investors. <laughs> market sharply lower here this morning uh, got that print of inflation um, kind of suggesting maybe some folks are saying maybe this Fed's gonna stay a little bit higher for longer uh, let's check in with uh, Gitu Sharma founder and investment manager of Alpha Structure LLC Gitu we had that big uh, inflation print this morning what do you've had you know a few hours here to di digest it what do you make of it hi thank you for having me uh Clearly, we are seeing um, some metrics of inflation come down, but uh, we are seeing others increase. Overall, the inflation dynamics remains uh, uh, unpredictable. I think it's hard to say um, how the numbers are going to pan out over the next few months, but I think we can clearly say that inflation is not coming down at the rate that Fed would like to see. Um, we are, it's possible last year we've seen uh, goods inflation come down, but um, services remain higher. And it's possible that uh, some of that consumer spending last year, which was more driven by travel and leisure, some of may come back to goods again this year. So I think, um, uh, I think the Fed is, um, it, I think the Fed is likely to stay, uh, in that inflation control mode and may want to keep the interest rates higher for longer. So, I mean, we rallied into this number yesterday. Um, you know, equities really have been on a tear since the October lows. We're trading at 4,100 basically, which is in line with uh, strategists' expectations for the year end. So, in that case, I mean, uh, um, aren't we too highly valued here at you know eighteen times earnings? I think uh, I I actually agree with you. I think equity valuations are are very high, and it is it's a bit of a surprise to me also, given this disconnect between the bond market and the equity markets, because we've seen. Uh, yields rise across the short end and the long end in light of some of this recent data. We've seen it, the economic data being very strong and the risk of a recession getting uh, pushed uh, back. Um, the labor market is, remains very strong. 
So there is no reason for the Fed to come around and cut rates right now. Uh, they can focus on this inflation dynamic because the unemployment data remains uh, very strong. And so to see the equity markets rally like they have, given all this, uh, um, you know, the uh, the underlying interest rate environment remaining um, in a tightening phase is surprising. And, and I think... Partly, it is driven by the fact that, yes, we have seen the economy stronger. The corporate earnings were not as weak as feared. So there's some positive around that. Uh, but partly, I think it, it has a lot of, it has been a lot of uh, positioning, the bearish positioning that we had in the last year uh, that's playing right now. Now, let's but put this in. Let's put this Gitu into perspective, so listeners understand. Before you founded Alpha's Future, um, and after you graduated London Business School, you went on to really ha- have a broad career. You worked at an insurance company. You were a credit ratings analyst. You were in equities at Credit Suisse, and then Pictet Asset Management. So you've you've been across assets and in regions around the world. What what are we heading for right now? What does it look like to you, this you know recession that's so widely forecast globally? Uh, thank you for the, uh, you know, sharing my background uh yeah it has been um i mean i think the the diversity of perspective i have really helps me uh look at markets from different angles and uh what we're seeing right now is that your base rates base interest rates the risk free rates are going up the the real rates are high but the equity risk premium, which is the um, excess reward you you want for taking equity, equity risk, that is coming down. And, um, and that is a disconnect given that, uh, you know, ultimately we've, we've seen peak economy and, um, and inflation outlook is still very high. So um, I think from a valuation standpoint, we really have to be careful about what we buy right now. We don't want to indiscriminately chase this market rally. We should, uh, at least from our perspective, what we are recommending to our investors is to focus on companies that have quality, that can, uh, that have pricing power, that have valuation support, uh, rather than uh, those which are interest rate sensitive and therefore, uh, you know, may uh, suffer from just reduction in valuation multiples. So what are some of the examples that fit into the, the bucket that you feel like are higher quality, perhaps a little bit safer uh, in this uncertain time? So we are looking at value opportunities in industrials, healthcare, also technology, uh, companies that have uh, you know, have some structural mega trends and um, can grow with the with the economy. Also, uh, you know, at a global level, companies that can grow with the China reopening story and Europe recovering from last year's uh, kind of energy crisis, uh, and also uh, quality defenses that can that have purchasing power and can you know pass on cost inflation that have pricing power. Um, yeah, it's more, it's less about uh, selecting sectors, but more about uh, looking at companies within sectors that can sustain uh, this growth environment and the inflation environment and higher interest rates from a valuation standpoint versus those that might be at risk. 
Hey, Gitu, you, I'm not sure how much you guys traffic in the energy space, but the energy stocks had just such a great year last year. And I'm looking at Brent crude at, you know, $85 a barrel. Did I miss that trade, or do you think there's still room to go in, in energy? Um, see, energy, I think, is a hard one to forecast. Uh, we don't do uh, we don't do commodity forecasting, so uh, and we don't play in the energy space because we have a focus on sustainability. Um, but I think, um, I mean, clearly, if, if we do see commodity prices go up, both energy and other commodities, uh, I mean, one, it would be a sign of uh, global economies doing well. Um, but at the same time, I think uh, it, more widely, it can have a negative impact on um, global equities yep. from right. an inflation standpoint. All right, great stuff. Uh, really appreciate uh, getting a few minutes of your time. That is Gitu Sharma, founder and investment manager for Alpha's Futures, LLC. A little bit of an ESG bet there, Matt, kind of a sustainability. Um, another investor incorporating that into uh, their investment framework. We're hearing more and more of that. Yeah, like. yeah, we are. I mean, it's an interesting debate that's, that's gone on, but it looks like um, you can see where the road is going. And at this point, it doesn't look like we're going to turn back. So yep. it makes a lot of sense. All right, good stuff. We're going to have more coming up. We've got the uh, equity market selling off today. Uh, we'll break it down for you going forward. This is Bloomberg. Good morning. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.